Hello, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network, presented by Interact. On June 3rd, Chika Aroa delivered the valedictorian address to the 2020 University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine graduating class, the first Black woman to do so standing alone. And in further good news, 24 Black students were admitted to the class of 2024. But this progress has been achieved against a backdrop of murder and policy failures. The death of George Floyd while in police custody has led to charges of murder and protests around the world. Thousands rallied in Toronto on May 30th, days after Regis Korczynski-Paquette's death. She died after falling from her 24th floor apartment shortly following the arrival of police, who were called by her mother for assistance in a dispute. All this while COVID-19 is proving to be stubborn to stamp out in Ontario and in Quebec, and U.S. data is showing that Black people are disproportionately negatively impacted. This moment is unprecedented, yet in many ways we've been here before. As noted in a recent joint statement issued by the Alliance for Healthier Communities, the Black Health Committee, the Black Health Alliance, and the Network for Advancement of Black Communities. The coalition is calling on the Ontario government to declare anti-Black racism a public health crisis as protests continue across North America. A public health crisis on top of another public health crisis. Today, I speak with Nelson Sadler. Nelson is a third-year student at the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine, class of 2021. He holds a Bachelor in Science and Kinesiology from McMaster. Nelson is a member of the Black Medical Students Association at U of T. Thank you for joining me, Nelson. Hey, Jody, how are you today? I'm good. You know, thanks for coming on the show to speak with me, you know, during what must be just an incredibly challenging time. It's been quite the whirlwind emotions this past week, these past several weeks, uh, these past months. Uh, I think you summed up best when you said we're having the public health crisis on top of a public health crisis. Um, I know a lot of us have been, you know, fighting ourselves through this. Well, yeah, it's it's very difficult times. And, and you know, before we dive into uh, some of the policy issues, I did want to talk a little bit about um, medical education and uh, your experience at the Faculty of Medicine and your membership in the Black Medical Students Association. What is the mission of that organization and how does it help? So the Black Medical uh, Students Association, the whole idea is that it was created over 20 years ago by Dr. Sean Wharton. And if you talk to Sean Wharton about this, I love it when he says this, the whole idea was to bring together those of the Black community within medicine and just share stories, share the experience, and even share a couple ethnic meals, because sometimes that's sometimes something that we're lacking. And so what the actual association has kind of molded into, especially my year, has more looking at advocacy and policy change. What can we do to not only help ourselves who are in the medical class, but help out the greater Black community that has been so forgotten by uh, the medical system here here in Canada and here in Ontario. So that's a that's an interesting you know evolution uh, for for the organization. Um, but it also makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I mentioned in the intro um, that you know Chica was um, uh, the first standalone black valedictorian. She was also the only black student in her medical class. So obviously, there's definitely uh, a need. For uh, change that can that can improve admissions policy, make it more equitable. Yeah, so when we really think about it, the 
whole premise of a medical school class is that you want to be reflective of your community. If you take Chica and you take one black medical student and you divide by the approximate number of students within that class being about 260, you're looking at a 0.04% percentage of what you are producing as a black physician. That's that's ridiculous. That's actually sickening in the sense that how do you provide for your almost your constituents, like you hold your over your patients when you kind of can't relate to them on every single level. And so again, the whole idea of um, incorporating more black students, one, just into medical school is to become more black physicians, those that are going to be able to serve their communities and go back again to their communities to bring those people out of the kind of health inequities that they're currently are residing in. Yeah. And let's um, let, let, let's get into a little bit of the historical context of this situation, too, because I think um, when we take a look at the policy challenge in front of us, as well as the data that, that, that you just mentioned. So in terms of history, it's not a great history. Right. Uh, you know, looking at Queens, you know, in 1918, uh, there was a vote to ban black students, even though there were black students currently enrolled. We have quite a shameful history when it comes to Black individuals in higher education. You mentioned Queens um, having the ban on Black students in their medical school. If we even look at just the amount of, again, Black students in medical schools at this current time, we just talked about Chica being one of the, literally the only person in her class, and that was just a couple of years ago. We still have this where even Queens University is not producing um, that many black physicians out of their program. We're, we're, this is not just a even Ontario issue. This is a Canada-wide issue that we're not producing enough black doctors. Um, we have racism that's been invoked in the system from from the very start of the system. Right, the, this foundation of these institutions w- was built on racism, and it's hard to have that quick flip and and now incorporate black students and say, hey, we're here for you. We want you to be in our school. We want you to be like, we want you to become physicians when you have such racist roots from the get-go. And I think that leads to why or what Toronto has done, what University of Toronto has done to kind of try to um, make change. And that's with the black student application process. Yeah. Can you tell us um, a little bit about that? So the black student application process was, was, uh, in the process of what was uh, started a couple of years back. And I think, again, Chica being the only senior class was kind of the alert on everybody's radar of like, hey, there's something not right here. What's the problem? And I think you have to take it from a step back approach and understand why is there only one black student in the class? Is it that the admissions committee is racist? Is it that there's not black students applying? Is it not that there's black students in STEM in the first place? There's there's things we have to think about all the steps of the way. We can't just attribute it just, just to one, one kind of factor here, right? And the whole idea of the black student application process was Toronto's way of saying, hey, like we, we do want you to be here, right? We do want to incorporate more black students. We understand that this is a need. We understand that there's inequity within these black communities and in order to properly serve them we need black physicians that understand that struggle that they can connect to those patients on the level that those without that shared lived experience just will not have that capability to do and so the black student application process uh, i'll take you a little bit through how i applied 
Um, when I apply through that process, how it works is the application is the complete same. You basically just check a box that says, yes, I'm applying to the black student application process. You write another essay that uh, the question is, what is, why are you applying through the black student application process? And the idea behind when you apply through this stream is that there'll be a guaranteed rater that when looks over all your essays and looks over your application, one of those raters will be black and a self-identified black uh, individual of the community, whether that be a community member, a physician, um, or a healthcare worker. And when you have your interview or when, or if you have your interview, um, again, you will be provided someone who is self-identified as a member of the black community. So, and, and I, you know, I mentioned in the intro, there has certainly been um, a larger number of admissions than one uh, for this uh, most uh, recent uh, medical school class. So, so how do you feel about how the program is performing thus far? Well, it, it's interesting to look at the program now. If you were to look at the program uh, when it was first uh, invoked, there was no way to tell whether it was working because we had no numbers on how many black students were applying before. So this is already the important thing is that now we're actually measuring, now we have actually this, this data to say like, hey, like we have this many black students or, or this many students who are self-identified as black applying this year. Like where can we find the pitfalls within the system? Is it, again, a lack of black people applying or is it a lack of black people getting in? Where is the uh, detriment within the system? So now that we have at least, I think we're three or four cycles of BSAP, now we can look back and say, hey, is this program growing? And it's been amazing to see that not only is this change reflected in uh, how many students are applying through this stream, um, but how many students are getting into U of T medical school. And so we've gone from the one, so Chica in her year, to my year being 14 black students, to the year after me being 15 black students, to the next year after that being 24 black students. And if we take those numbers again and we go 24 divided by that 260, now we're going more of that representative of that population. We're at 9%. And we look at Toronto, Toronto's approximately 10% uh, black. Now, what we have to do, still take into account though, is that we haven't fixed the problem. Right. This is just black students at this current time that are graduating and going to become physicians in 2024. There's still a lack of black representation at all levels, whether that be, again, medical students, residents, physicians. This is not a fix. Right. We still need to keep going. We still need to keep working. And what about the experience once you do become a student? So um, I'm not a doctor. I didn't go to medical school. But uh, when I went to U of T law school, um, we had um, Indigenous students start the program, but they never finished the program. Just getting the green light wasn't enough uh, to for the school to increase the number of Indigenous lawyers. What's the experience when, once you are a student at uh, U of T Faculty of Medicine today? That, that's a great question. And it's always important to talk about the uh, Black experience especially once getting into U of T medicine. Because again, though there are barriers, though there are obstacles getting into the program, it's not like you get into the program and now all of those are cured and now you're good to go. Um, the systemic racism in these institution is prevalent and it's persistent. So it still is at every kind of step of the way and we need to remember that. So for, for my personal experience coming in, and within the first week, um, there was this theme that was brought up by administration. Um, 
And it was an excellent point made by them, and it was called imposter syndrome. And what imposter syndrome is, is that feeling that you don't belong where you are right now. That maybe your application slid across someone's desk and they were like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm feeling good today, so I'm going to let this person in. That something happened along the way that was not based on your merit, that was not based on what you've done in your life. It was almost like a lucky chance that you finally got into med school. And yes, like a lot of us in the class felt like that. And by no means is this just a Black experience. This is a this is a ubiquitous kind of feeling that goes through a lot of students. And when you get that first mark back, I remember I got my first mark back on a genetics uh, exam and I didn't pass. And, and I, at that moment, was like, do, you, do I deserve to be here? Because clearly my exam marks are not showing that, right? As hard as I'm working, I don't know if I'm good enough. Like, am I good enough? And so when we think about imposter syndrome now for the Black experience, it's almost like another imposter syndrome on top of that. Again, it's double to triple times that because now, one, you get in and you're looking for kind of some guidance from those that are superior to you, whether that be in higher medical school classes, whether that be residents, whether that be physicians, and you're not seeing that identification of Black individuals in those positions because there's not a lot of Black doctors. Uh, we're not, we're not, you're not able to identify with those people because they, they don't exist in abundance. And then on top of that, now when you're looking at, you know, that imposter syndrome again, those that are applying to that Black student application process, there's that lingering feeling in the back of your mind that, hey, did I just, did I get in because I'm Black? And even if you convince yourself that that's not the case, do others now think I just got in because I'm Black? And how do I keep having have to prove myself time after time again to prove that I deserve to be here? What's going to tell my classmates, my colleagues, everybody that I deserve to be here? And, and I don't have that answer for you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super difficult. Um, you know, I, there's so much pressure in professional schools, um, to begin with, um, there's the cost, there's the pressure of the competition that doesn't go away once you arrive. Um, if there's any kind of difference, um, as you say, the, the, the imposter syndrome, uh, then kicks in and that can be very layered. And the more layers, I think the greater the burden. Um, so that's, that, that's very, that's very difficult uh, on top of already a challenging program, I, I, I should say. Um, so, you know, so, so talking a little bit then about, about the curriculum, um, how, when, when, when you're, when you're, when you're studying that the curriculum, is there any sort of evidence of black Canadian health and are there any efforts to ensure that, the curriculum speaks to the diversity of uh, Canada's population's health. I think the University of Toronto has done a lot of work in the past years with the overhaul of their curriculum. Uh, there's been a lot of integration of kind of that, that um, one, racism within healthcare, but also the inequities within society. And one of the big things they teach you right off the bat when you're starting your first classes is the social determinants of health. And I had kind of heard about these things um, going through university before, but none of my classes were really kind of based or, or centered on it. Um, but this was one of the things they kind of talked about at the very get-go. And once you realize the social determinants of health, what they are, then you can start applying those to the communities that you're involved with. Now, in terms of other things that we learned with our curriculum that, again, are, are race-based issues, one of the things was when I'm treating my patients, 
does the color of their skin matter for how I go about my treatments? And if we look at the past ways that conditions were certainly treated, uh, sickle cell, for example, the idea was that if you have a black individual, especially if you have an African individual, you should be prized screening for sickle cell disease. Now, that's, that's completely inaccurate. What we're doing is we're taking even East African data and West African data, and we're molding it together to create this monolith of what the black person is. And that's ridiculous. It's, again, how do you provide patient-centered care when you're not even acknowledging like, what a person is more susceptible to in the first place? So what was seen and what, what is seen in the past, again, is that black monolith. And what we're kind of moved from here is that, again, the patient-centered experience or the patient-centered care, what we have to do is look at someone beyond what color their skin is, but where they actually come from, what communities they're raised in, how can I provide care for my patient that makes sense to who they are and what they experience? What are the social determinants of health for my patient? What are their finances? What is their economic situation? What is their housing situation? What is their access to care? And how does that play into how healthy someone is? So uh, thank you for raising the social determinants of health um, because I definitely wanted to talk to you um, about that. There was this, you know, really compelling um, piece by Alan Wheel, uh, and he's the editor of Health Affairs. And he wrote the following about the likelihood of the healthcare system effectively addressing social determinants of health. He said, the reasons for my skepticism about medicine's ability to adequately address the social determinants of health are many, but mostly revolve around the implausibility of the powerful and resource-rich health sector serving as a catalyst for change by transferring resources and power to the social sector and engaging authentically and equitably with resource-poor communities. So I read that, and you know, it's um, you know, it's difficult to argue with his logic there, you know, um, because um, so much of the discussion about the social determinants of health, um, the discussion can really focus in on evidence, but leave the aspect of power out of it. Um, and I think you're bringing up the really good point of if we're really going to do something effective in changing these power dynamics, we have to look at who doctors are. I completely agree with you there. Um, the, the quotation that you've chosen is, is a powerful one. Uh, it, it's a difficult one to hear, um, but I think almost in even in reference to your question before, one of the uh, things I've heard recently um, was no data, no problem, no solution. And if we break that down, what that means is that if we do not have the data on what is plaguing our societies, right? We don't know, and this is just not even on a on a uh, black community basis. This is not on a black experience basis. This is just on if we do not know what the conditions or what the diseases are prevalent in our society, how are we supposed to treat them and what are we supposed to treat, right? Where, how, the way we allocate resources within our society, within our government and within policy is based off of evidence. 
But we need to highlight these inequities within our society to understand why Black people are having more negative health outcomes. So again, the purpose for provincial and federal budgets, the way our society is based, the way we invoke policy, it's it's absolutely necessary to conduct that needs-based approach and allocate funds this way. But we we know there's a problem. We still need proof. We know that Black communities are hit harder, especially in times of crisis like COVID-19, but we need proof. We know that Black communities are increased risk for negative health outcomes in so many different facets, but we still need that race-based data, similar to how our neighbors in the South are collecting that. Because again, this is what drives policy. Again, this comes back to the previous misconception that Black people are this monolith, that they're all going to be affected by the same the same things. And it's even been said that it's because they're biology, but this is not accurate. It's by the social determinants of health, right? It's, it's about these inequities that further why we are not healthy. So let's talk data for, for a bit here. Um, Ontario has appointed Dr. Jane Philpott to lead its pandemic data effort to better detect COVID-19 discover risk factors for vulnerable populations, and predict when and where outbreaks might happen. So not to put you too much on the spot, but just in general, what do you hope see, hope to see come out of this effort of focusing on pandemic data? I think just taking a step back here and assessing this on what it means to uh, medicine from my perspective and what I'm doing now. One of the most common themes in medicine is whether collecting additional data on a patient is going to change my management. Okay, so let me explain. Does running this diagnostic test, whether that means blood work, imaging, whatever that is, does that affect how I treat my patient? Do the results I get back change the avenues I'm going to take and overall to treat that person, right? So again, we're trying to collect that data in order to allocate resources and fundamentally change how to help this community. and so. The concern I have, I saw the other day uh, that we have 1.0 million that's allocated to uh, these uh, Black families and, and Black youth and immediate support to help Black communities recover from the impacts of COVID-19. But then when you dig a little deeper and look at the 10 million that was allocated to horse racing in Ontario, it's difficult to assess where the priorities of the Ontario government are. Now, that being said, Dr. Jane Philpott is an amazing woman, and she will help for sure in this response. And I think they've, they've, they've elected someone into this position that will do great work as a clear ally of the Black community, of people of color, of the Indigenous community. But my concern is with the actual government itself and where their priorities are. Camille Orridge said, data creates a clear way to demand action and hold the system accountable. It's not a solution, but it's a powerful tool on the path to change. That's such a great quote, right? Like it's just amazing quote. so ripe with meaning. So let's talk about change. I mean, you talked about, you know, in, in your last reply, the the disparity between, you know, monies for the black community to cope with uh, COVID versus um, support for the, the race and in industry. Um, you know, what, um, in terms of solutions, what are some of the policy changes um, you would like to see? And you also mentioned, too, that the Black Medical Student Association is also looking at, at policy change. Yeah, so there's, uh, just before I go into policy change, again, the 
the evidence for race-based data was kind of elicited in a literature review by Ani Norum in 2019, so just last year, and some other colleagues from U of T, and they found that Black Canadian women may be under-screened for cervical and breast cancer due to the lack of that health data. Now, that being said, when they dived a little bit into it, Black Caribbean women appeared to get more screened, or at the same rate, than white Canadian women, but Black women from sub-Saharan Africa were less likely to be screened. So this is where you have to look at the minorities within the populations and understand that, again, this is not a monolith. So in terms of policy change, that's where you can take that evidence and, and see what populations need that support and for what. Now, in terms of what the BMSA, the Black Medical Students Association, is working towards is one, yes, race-based data, but also the uh, the uh, induction of a BSAP program at several other schools throughout Canada. We don't just have Black people in Toronto. <laughs> we have Black people across Canada. And, and we need to be serving those communities. And the way we're going to be serving those communities is by creating more Black doctors, is by making up for that lack of Black representation at all levels of medical care, at all levels of even government. To make that policy change, we need to bring those people to the table as well as our communities and understand what their needs are and voice those concerns. Now, in terms of what else we need to do is we, we need to change the culture of medicine. So right now, if we look at it from what medicine is, is that nepotism and implicit bias do drive somewhat in admissions. We do see that doctors' kids do get into med school, and that's not a shame on them. Right? We do need more doctors, and those people have been raised that way in order to be doctors. But at the same time, we know that there are communities that, that do not have access to health care, and they're in lower socioeconomic areas, and those people are struggling to, one, access health care, but two, have people that can attend health care. So we need to look at those communities and integrate them and say, hey, like we need to have doctors in that community, but therefore we should be taking people from that community, training them in healthcare, bring them into med school, so that then they go back to their communities and serve them. And what has the receptivity of other med schools, medical schools been so far? So it's, it's a great question. And uh, unfortunately, I'm on not on the admissions board in terms of uh, the other medical schools. I'm on the admissions board just for our school. So I'm not in uh, talks with the, uh, in terms of how the BSAP program is going in all other schools, I know that some schools have been receptive. Uh, some schools uh, actually have not been. Um, this is not to point fingers and name names, but to say that not all schools have been receptive and seen the same way that we do, I think should be highlighted here. Is that even though we have a clear objective here, and even though our vision makes sense and it's necessary, again, to highlight all these inequities within our society, not everybody is on board. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. If I if I understand you correctly, you know what 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 you're saying uh, about data, and and you know I think it's probably a, a general point that's true, but but it's particularly true as you've illustrated in healthcare, it's it's data in context, right? So so it's the it's the health of this individual, not as just a black person, right? Which is your point. There's this diversity, um, and that and that the healthcare system needs to cope with that and. And the, and the ability to manage and respond and be effective um, in those activities and in those undertakings is to um, is to have is to have rich data that 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 you can base policy on. So 
you know, thinking, so continuing on with that theme, you know, uh, uh, people, not only are we sort of, you know, products of our food security, our education, our employment status, um, and other um, social determinants of health, we're, we're all existing in this world, right? That there's, you know, a pandemic going on, there's protests, there's these um, just, you know, awful and very graphic filmed uh, instances of um, police brutality and, and in some cases, you know, murder. So thinking about that policy context, when, when you look out as a, as, as a person who's about to become a doctor, what are the policy changes that you want to see so that, uh, so that to improve population health? Growing up, I remember my mom talking to me and brother uh, about safety in the community. And uh, I was fortunate to grow up in uh, more of a middle-class area. I was fortunate where uh, the presence of police brutality and the overstepping of authority uh, was not exactly prevalent. But I remember her giving my brother a talk on if you need help, if there's something wrong and you're walking home and you need to call somebody, call me or call your dad. Or call someone like one of your family members. Or if I can't get there, I can't help you out, I will send someone and I will give you like a password to say to them. And that's how you will be able to, to, to get help and be safe. Now, one of the things that was glaring to me that I didn't really think about later and that comes up now, it was never this call 911 and get help from the police. And I, I want to be careful here because I believe the police are necessary in a lot of regards, but we need to think about what the police started as. We need to think about the police in the States. We need to think about the police here in Canada. We have issues across the board in terms of how, what the structure is and, and how they go about what the profession is. Now, if we think about the roots of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they were racist roots. They were used to oppress the Indigenous people. And so a lot of the um, attitudes and a lot of the kind of voices and, and messages that are coming out of the recent protests, if you look at signs, it says abolish the police. And I want to unpack that a little bit because it's not to say get rid of the police, we don't need them anymore. What I think we need to evaluate here is how much money are we pooling or how much money are we allocating towards uh, policing services in comparison and relative to how much money we're pooling to the social programming that's relevant to the communities that are being heavily policed. So if we're looking at the, the communities that are heavily even oppressed in our society, they, they lack a lot of social programming, they lack a lot of social assistance. And so what's seen with that is that these communities, and again, talking with a lot of my friends that I've that I didn't share the experience with, that, but that lived that experience in terms of carding, in terms of racial profiling. If we were to take that money instead, and instead of, again, we, we reinvest that into crisis support teams, reinvest that into social work, we reinvest it into teams to respond to crisis, there's something there to unpack. So if we take the past instances that have happened the past, um, even just this year, this is this is not the first time that, and if we talk about the states for a second, this is not the first time we've had an I Can't Breathe campaign. 
This is not the first time. If we look at up here, this is not the first time that a black man and a black woman and a black individual has been killed as a result of police escalation. Now, thought, what if we, instead of calling the police to matters like this, we had crisis support teams that were called that could come and de-escalate these situations without the threat of a deadly weapon? It's tough to sit here and acknowledge that bringing a gun to an encounter like this has another purpose besides using it. What if we had trauma support teams? What if we had emergency response and deployable, even something like substance abuse teams, to, to attend these emergencies as they come up? Again, a needs-based approach. What do we need at this time? Well, we need someone that's trained in this particular, this particular concern. We, we have social workers that are trained in this stuff. We, we can deploy them. We can, we can make teams that are there to more help our communities in the sense of giving them what they need in their times of crisis rather than this approach of possible oppression, this approach where someone ends up hurt or where someone ends up dead. You made a few important points there, uh, Nelson, and, and I want to make sure that, that, that we cover them. So um, one is, you know, there, 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 there's a diversity of thought when it comes to police funding. Some, some advocates would say, let's just stop the budget increases. Others would say, well, let's do some, you know, large across the board reductions. And then others still would say, let's do a full defunding. But what all those groups agree on is that, um, is that whatever monies are not now going towards a police budget, they should go towards services. Now, the services, you, you've already mentioned one, let, 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 let's not have the police uh, respond to um, uh, uh, calls related to um, mental health issues. Let's actually have a clinical team uh, with adequate training you know, respond to, to de-escalate and ease these situations. What, what other kinds of services uh, would you like to see this funding go towards? Among a mental health crisis team, as we just discussed, I think one of the bigger things, too, we look at in our underserved communities is um, education. Um, education is one of those things that we, we need to be able to um, allow or, or bring and open up to those underserved communities to get them more uh, involved with the process and integrated into uh, different levels of uh, either even medical care or in healthcare or in government. Uh, we, we have obstacles in place there as a result of these uh, institutions that are built. Now, again, when I say education, I want to be careful here because in there was a report done by David Holchansky's team uh, a couple years back, and, and they showed that in some of these lower income neighbor neighborhoods, we still had relatively higher levels of education. So half those residents in those areas actually had a post-secondary degree, 25% from university, 25% from a community college. So there's clearly still some discrimination that's happening in whether that's job selection, whether that's uh, social programming, that there's, that's not the full solution, right? So again, even though education is something we need to improve, that, that's by no means going to be a, a true fix. Now, I think other programs we can look at are, are substance abuse teams. So when we think about a overdose and we think about a 911 call that goes out, again, some of the people that arrive at that scene, th those would be police. 
But there has been talk that the police are not equipped with the tools or they don't have the training to properly assist those that are going in under an overdose. We do need teams that are prepared for this, similar to how we need teams that are prepared for mental health crises. There's, again, certain needs within society that right now police are being in charge of. And one, already they may not be comfortable with. So they're put in a position that they are slightly already on edge or on guard for. And the people that are calling them, that are looking for the help that they need in order to either survive or feel safe, is not being provided for. So before I let you go, Nelson, um, I want to ask you this one last question. Desmond Cole, in conversation with Taya Mutanji and the Walrus, noted that, you know, mainstream news outlets, they they do cover stories um, of uh, anti-Black racism and violence. But they but his point is what's missing is any attempt to connect these stories to a bigger reality. And so what I want to ask you as you're on your journey to become a doctor, um, what might Canadian healthcare look like if we connected care with the larger reality of anti-black racism? I think one thing that needs to be recognized right now is that in order to be anti-racist, and I know you're talking about anti-Black, but in order to be anti-racist, you cannot just say, I am not racist. You cannot just say, like, I do not uh, discriminate against Black people. I do not think that way. That is not me. The whole idea here is to acknowledge the problem in the first place. And that's one thing that the government uh, previously just did this week, the provincial government saying that systemic racism doesn't exist in Canada. This country was built on racism. This country was built on oppression, oppressing the indigenous people. This country is built in the backs of immigrants. We, we need to acknowledge our pitfalls. Uh, there was a tweet by a, a fourth year in medicine, uh, one of my close friends, Kim, who, who discussed a time actually with Chica when she was crossing over the border into the States. And they were asked, oh, what are you going in for? And they were going through and saying how they're all medical students. And there was a, almost a shock factor that Chica was a medical student. And Kim acknowledges that she didn't speak up at the time. And I think what needs to be brought forward first before we can make that change is that we all make mistakes. We all have had these times where, where we felt weak. It's not enough to be to say, I'm not racist. It, it's, it's enough. It, it's more than enough. You need to say, I have made mistakes in my life and I need to work to support these people, to have that allyship, to, to be an ally to these groups. So to see the change within the medical care system, one, we need to have ally support. We need to have people within our classes that are sticking up to, especially preceptors, people of power. When I'm a clerk and I have a doctor that's talking about a patient in a way that is not equitable, or in a sense that is insensitive, and it's due to the color of their skin, it's not enough for me to stand up. I need, I need my white colleagues, I need my Asian colleagues, I need other colleagues to stand up with me, to be on my side and say, hey, this is not right. And your care, the care of the patient is being affected as a result of this. And it's hard with the power dynamic. It's hard to, to stand up and, and to, again, come across as someone that almost might be disturbing the peace or going against the status quo. But this shouldn't be the status quo. That's the problem. If we keep 
being a mo- like a moderate in this case, we keep having this centrist view of, oh, like, you know, we want to we want to make sure that there's no disturbance or we want to make sure that there's, uh, you know, good and bad to to both kind of movements here. That That's not enough anymore. We need you on our side. We need you to be with us. We need you to be with us in clinic. We need you to be as we need you to be with us in the classroom. We need you to be out there with us in the community. We need you to help bring us up and not let those people talk us back down. Nelson, thank you so much for your passionate advocacy. I think Canadians are going to be a lot healthier with you as a doctor and with all of your colleagues um, who have the benefit of you being their peer. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me um, and really educating uh, our audience and taking the time to share some of your personal experiences as well. It's really much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. I appreciate this.